Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer, author, and software architect. And I'm Beach, the journeyman developer sharing my journey in development. Complete Developer Podcast is supported by listeners like you. We are now on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Complete Developer Podcast. When you replace a running legacy system with a new system, it can be tempting to do it all at once. However, doing so courts disaster and makes the process much more painful than it has to be. Even though it sounds easier, a sudden system cutover is almost never pleasant. I've literally never seen it be pleasant. Yeah. In this episode, we're going to discuss some of the things that you can do to make migrating existing client data to a new system easier with the assumption that these are paying clients in a multi-tenant environment. But before we get started, Will, what have you been transitioning lately? Well, speaking of paying clients in a multi-tenant environment, I have been going through the AWS Certified Cloud Practitioner study material. Uh, this week is our team week. And so that's my task for the week. And right before we started recording, I think I was at 65% of the way through the training material. And then I've got to do you know practice tests and probably some other training material as well. I'm going to try to knock this thing out this week. Yeah, so it's, it's actually surprisingly good for vendor training. You know, they were engaging and they're, you know, they have like a mix of like audio visual and, you know, written out stuff, you know, that kind of covers the same thing. So you can kind of hit it twice. Yeah. And I've done a much better job of taking notes this time. So yeah, I feel pretty good about it. Yeah, it's been fun. How about you? Cool. Uh, I'm actually going through some uh, Azure certifications right now. My AZ204 or studying for it, to be honest with you. We're doing our... Uh, lab days, basically three days a quarter where we get to to spend time doing that. So that's that's cool. And uh so yeah, that's 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 really cool though. I like the you're going through that too, man, because we can we can compare Azure yeah. and AWS. So that's neat. That would actually be a really neat episode if we could figure out how to do it. That would be a fun episode. We should we should do that. Yeah. So I uh as for for me and mine, which is me and my dog, yeah, man, it's um, it's 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 a good time. Yeah, I uh, went to the chiropractor today, and he did a new thing with this with my basically popping my shoulder. Uh huh. Man, like it had been bothering me all day. Actually, for a couple of days, he did that, and I'm like, wow, I'm having Great. problems on my left side with something, and it, it aches all the way down my arm. And it's back into the shoulder blade. So something's oh, just cool. slightly out of whack. It's it's the pits. Yeah. Uh, that sucks. It really does. Like when when that happens. Um, I got a massage and then because I got a massage therapist there and then did that, which is just awesome, dude. Like you should totally do that sometime. Get a massage and then an adjustment. It's so phenomenal. I suggest everyone try that. It is it is amazing. I've done it the other way. I've gotten the adjustment and then the massage. Yeah, yeah, that one's that one's good too. But there is just something. Well, I'll just tell you this: there's something about running two and a half miles because I get a, I have like a delayed response. 
So like I went to the gym, I ran two and a half miles, then I went and got the massage. So like the runner's high kicked in while I was getting the massage. Oh, nice. Yeah. And so by the time I get to the the chiropractor, I'm just like all sorts of just relaxed and yeah. Just, yeah, I did mine on leg day. Oh, <laughs> that was, oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> that wasn't helpful. <laughs> I, I will tell you this though, because it's we're doing the, the lab days. I was doing training today, the Azure stuff. I went to um, one of my favorite coffee shops. And let me just say, getting a quinoa veggie wrap right before you go to the gym. I mean, it was about an hour before I ran, but still hummus and onions and beans all sitting on the as I'm running was not the wisest thing I've done today. Yeah, I was going to say, it doesn't really count the category of wise. At all? No, no. It uh, <laughs> of the running. It was, it was not, but you know, running, haha. But yeah, uh, I survived. I survived. So, so saving money is hard, especially when you are making some tough decisions about transitions. I don't know. <laughs> Best I got. Lucas Casada is, is a fee-only certified financial planner. He owns and runs Level Up Financial Planning virtually out of Fort Collins, Colorado. And just like us here at Complete Developer Podcast, his focus is on helping you not only establish a real plan, but also to take action so that you can live your best life. Yeah. And speaking of your best life, investing in financial planning services really comes down to whether or not you can actually improve your finances by using those services. And with the help of Level Up, the compounding impact of making better financial decisions will easily pay for itself. Level Up has a unique pricing model that is designed to help you no matter where you are in your financial journey. So whether you are a junior developer just starting out or a grizzled senior developer looking forward to retirement, they will. <laughs> uh, Lucas has a plan that will work for you. Lucas is also a fiduciary for his clients, which means that he's not here to sell you a product, but to actually guide you to a better financial situation. Yeah, so you guys can catch his podcast, Techie Personal Finance Bootcamp, where he covers financial topics you face and interviews other IT professionals who share how they navigated their careers. You can also learn more at levelupfinancialplanning.com. Applications are like motor oil. While they do facilitate the smooth running of organizations, they do not last forever for a variety of reasons. And they become a problem over time if you just leave them alone. While legacy apps probably were great in their day, otherwise you wouldn't be replacing them with something better, you'd just be retiring them, apps do have a limited lifetime. At some point, you're better off with a rewrite, especially if earlier decisions have made upgrading and refactoring impossible. It's like you use a, you know, a technology that is not getting replaced with something newer or where you have to do a major rewrite you know, structurally uh, to get to the next level. And it doesn't actually provide any value until you've done a complete you know, undercarriage rewrite of the system. You may just want to rewrite the whole thing and just replace it with something else. Mm -hmm. And if you put them in my car, they disappear. My car burns oil. That's what I'm saying. Oh, it's like, like uh, it just yeah. went way over Will's head. He's just looking at me like, I have no yeah. idea what you're talking about, bro. <laughs> like applications disappear in your car. <laughs> it's, uh, they, they don't really do that. Like exactly. Right. They don't really exist. 
my my engine is like the black hole of of oil. I have to check it every uh, every time I stop for gas and put more in. It's a it. shame you don't live closer to my parents then, since they're in that business. It is, and I don't live that. They far could make some parents. money off of you. They could, yeah. That's that's yeah. I knew that's where you're going. They wouldn't give that. it to you for free. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe I could order in bulk from them. That might save me a little bit of money. Their definition of bulk and yours is probably not aligned. Their well, it, would, it would be it would be it would be small for them, but it would be bulk for me. Right. Maybe? I don't know. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> anyway. So while it is common to want to do all the work to build a new version of the app and then just migrate everyone over, doing so requires huge risks. Not only does it mean that the legacy app hangs around for most of your clients for a lot longer, but it also greatly increases the risk that something will go wrong across the board once people do migrate. Also, a lot of institutional knowledge is encoded, basically always encoded into old apps, if you kind of know how to look for it. So instead of trying to migrate everything at once, you need a process that allows you to make mistakes and, most importantly, to both recover from and learn from those mistakes. In short, rather than a perfect process, you need to develop a perfecting process. Several things are required for this. First, you need to reduce the number of places where things can go wrong at any given step. Second, you need to be able to determine what actually went wrong quickly, which means you you limit your complexity. Third, you have to be able to quickly adjust and try again. While the final goal is a full migration of all of your client data, your goal until the last moment is the cultivation of a feedback loop that continually moves you closer to the real goal, not the end goal. That makes sense. Yeah, I followed up. So guys, in this episode, we'll discuss some things you need to be doing when migrating clients from an older legacy system to a new system that is under active development. Then in the aftercast, we'll discuss some things managers need to consider when a migration process is going on. Yeah, and we recently migrated off of our old system at work. Um, And I think they started before I started there, which has been like almost three years, you know, moving cohorts of users across. And so I've watched uh, the the stress of this operation and, and all the fun things that have happened. And I can tell you that's that's kind of the inspiration for this episode because I kind of I realize how horrific it would have been if we'd have done it just you know <laughs> a quick cut over. Like yeah, there would have been there would have been a server farm fire at Amazon, I'm sure, because we would have generated so much heat. Because it's not a simple process, especially when your stuff has been around for a, a long time and there's a lot of data, mm-hmm. potentially even old weird data, uh, which was also something we ran into. So it's kind of why I wrote this out is I think it's useful for junior developers because a lot of times you, until you've encountered this, you don't know what can go wrong. So we'll start out with what can go wrong. Um, And the first principle here is to try not to add trouble until you've gotten rid of some trouble. And what we mean by that is if the old system is unstable and you're the one that's responsible for maintaining it, you need to try to stabilize it before you start building a new system. Uh, Not only does this reduce the interruptions that you face, but it also gives you more time to do things the right way because you're not constantly fighting fires. 
or you know, you know, bleeding clients because you know they're they're tired of the way the old system is crashing. Yeah. So if the old system is constantly falling apart, you're going to feel a lot of pressure to speed up that migration. And what's going to happen is you're going to have well, scope creep isn't the right word, but you're you're going to like be pushing deadlines and you're going to make mistakes and that's going to come out in the new app and the new app's going to be worse than the old one because it's going to have oh sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to have all these these issues that if you had taken your time and done it the proper way and not tried to rush it out, you wouldn't have had. Yeah. Uh, uh, again, you know, we were kind of talking about you know, setting up a feedback loop. This is a feedback loop going the wrong way mm-hmm. because it essentially makes it where things keep getting worse. And you'll also drive people off your team and out of your client base at the same time. Now, this also means that as you develop a new system, you really need to prioritize stability of the new system rather than migrating more people on it. So like when you've moved people over and stuff is breaking, fix that before you bring anybody else on. Yeah. And I know that this sounds obvious when you're hearing it on a podcast, but I guarantee you when you sit in a boardroom somewhere discussing it, this will be just something they can't envision. Yeah. Consistently. Next, be able to stage data migrations for a subset of your clients. So unless your system is like tiny, like really, really small, a total migration is going to add a lot of complication and basically bog down your whole system. Yeah. I mean, the thing is with scale, you gotta, you gotta think about scale as not ever being linear when you're doing computer stuff, like just across Mm -hmm. the board. It is like an ant, an ant, a normal sized ant can lift 50 times its own body weight. Okay. If an ant was our size, its own body weight would break its legs. Yeah. Because structurally scale is its own thing and it, it hits you. So you do not want to encounter that in a system where you already have other unknowns because scale will just crush you. Your clients also probably don't typically, you know, even though Microsoft doesn't believe this, apparently uh, they typically don't want a critical system moved or changed without their consent and no warning. Yeah, it, It's funny how people that hand you money expect you not to cost them money. Yeah. They weren't expecting, you know, it's just sort of <laughs> strange how things work like that. Uh, I mean, and, and it's also just like a consideration issue. Like even if it doesn't hurt them, they're still not going to appreciate that because it could have. That makes sense. Given that you may have to migrate some clients multiple times in order to get it right. It helps a lot to be able to target them well so you don't mess with everyone's data for that one really weird client. Yeah, and everybody's oh, got everybody's that got client. One. Yeah, and if yeah. you don't know who it is, you don't need to be doing this <laughs> because you're going to find out in a way that you don't like. That's like saying, I know there's no rattlesnakes in my yard. Uh, you know, you, it's better to know, yeah, there's probably a snake over there. Don't, don't go stomping around there in the summer. Cause you're going to get bit. And when you move clients in cohorts, right? You, you, you know, you take 20 or 30 of them, right? And you move them over. And then there's mm-hmm. that one client that all their stuff is screwed up. Right. Yeah. But you figure out how to fix it and you go fix it. Well, now you need to remigrate them in some manner. You don't want to move the whole co- cohort again because you've turned all the other ones on because whatever that weird client is, that has the weird data situations. Those people 
always have somebody that does not look for like a week and figure mm-hmm. out that the system screwed up. Right? Yeah. Their stuff is weird for a reason. Mm-hmm. Just typically. So they're going to, they're going to find this out like after everybody else has already moved. And so you cannot migrate the rest of the cohort again because, hey, this is a production system and you're touching their data in a way that's risky. You will screw that up. So the next, I guess, thing you should be doing, way to put it. Yeah, principle. That's a, that's a good word. We should use the word. Make migrations item potent with gating so you can repeat them without breaking things for your clients or having to wipe data. So, Will, do you want to explain item potency to people? Sure. It means you can do the same operation again without damaging anything. So, like, you move your data over. You don't have to delete the data. You can move and it says, hey, I've already got this thing, so don't change it again. Yeah. You're not screwing up logs. You're not screwing up anything else. It's just like, yep, I've got this. Go to the next one. Versus having to delete data, because that's always risky. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you do have some mathematical operations that are item potent and you have others that are not. And you have certain data operations you can do and certain ones you can't because, you know, like if you're deleting a record or you're incrementing some counter and the next time you come through, that's a problem. You know, is the best way to think about that. Yeah, basically the core here is to never assume that you're going to migrate data for anyone just once because that's, mm-hmm. it's just not a valid assumption. Yeah, makes sense. Now, relying on the ability to wipe and re-add data is also problematic, especially if more data is added, you know, in the interim, like when the client is testing in production. This is kind of a, you know, odd thing that I actually mentioned further down, but we'll, you know, mention it now. This system is production for you, right? For As far as the devs are concerned, this is a production system. But when the client is not moved over to it, it's a testing environment for them. And so when they, you know, they add a new client of theirs to the system, they're probably going to do it in both places. And so if you have to re-migrate after that, what do you do? You know, do I delete that record and all of a sudden now it's not there and now the system looks bad? Or if I have an item potent migration process, I can just run it again and typically get away with it. You'll probably also find that a lot of things that you think are item potent are not. Mm -hmm. Um, But you're going to discover that, you know, you'll hit, you'll, you'll find that wall when you hit it. Yeah. That makes sense. Like Wiley Coyote. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Management just painted a tunnel. Basically. You also need to gate the migration so that it doesn't actually take effect until data is migrated and everything is confirmed to work. Right. So you don't want to just move it and go, yep, you're live. Which hopefully you're not going to do that, but in the pressure of the moment or when it looks good enough for you, even if it's completely perfect, the client probably has some expectations around that. Like they want to see that it works before they move it over. You know, bear in mind that if they're paying you for something, there's a reason for it. And they really don't need that broken, whatever that is, because it costs them money, time, attention. So, so you kind of want to make sure that they have some input before you just, you know, force them over. Right? Like it's a very bad practice. Microsoft Windows notwithstanding to do that to your clients. Yeah. Now, the next one is also very, very important is to kind of get your list of clients together and break them into cohorts. And you do this based on the feature set that they use. So you're going to have to have some heuristics and you're going to have to come up with what those are based on your app uh, and, and the size of the client. Don't 
do something goofy like moving clients in alphabetical order because <laughs> uh, that probably is not related to how complex the thing is. There's just there's better ways to categorize things than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is a Pareto curve with feature utilization. Oh wow, why did I say that so weird? Utilization, utilization. All right, there is a Pareto curve with feature utilization. Eighty percent of your clients likely only use about twenty percent of your features, so move them first. And that makes a lot of sense because I look at a lot of the applications that I use. And yeah, like if I'm using it in a mainstream way, I use about 20% of the features and don't yeah, touch the like others. Microsoft Word. Yeah. What percentage of, of that thing's features have you used in your lifetime? That's true. That's true. It, it's probably not even, yeah, it's probably not much above 20%. And you've probably been using that since the 90s. What's What's funny is I'll show stuff to people who use Word like daily that they've never seen before. And they're like, I didn't even know you could do that. I was like, oh yeah. Also, Word was how I got around getting in trouble for hacking the school's computer systems in high school to play video games. I found you could uh, run an executable in it. No. At least the old one. I don't think you can do that in the newer one, can you? I'm sure there's security constraints to to stop that. But yeah, there's... But that's a, a prime example of it. And if you're using Visual Studio, you probably can only find 20% of the features because it's buried in a menu somewhere. Uh, <laughs> True. Junior dev, you know, like you'll be a grizzled old veteran and some junior devs be like, oh yeah, I, I saw, I learned this the second day I was using this thing. And I'm like, I've been using this since beta. I've never seen this before. Yeah, I did um, that to you when I was a junior developer. Yeah. Was I know, before I was a junior. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> That's great, now, dude. You should also start with smaller clients and smaller feature sets uh, for fairly obvious reasons and then work your way towards bigger clients and bigger feature sets. So what you do is it's almost like you you group group them into cohorts based on the feature sets that they use. And then within those groups, you sort them by the size, getting an ever larger slice of the pie of features and bigger clients, you know, as you go. And, And some of the really big ones you may wait to move, even if you got their feature set covered just because it gives you more time to see what the load issues are in the system before you do that. Cause big clients pay a lot and you don't want to break their stuff. Cause then it's all, all hands on deck when that happens. This approach will help you find performance issues while impacting fewer clients. Yeah. And, and the reason uh, that's kind of on the list is because you will have performance issues, right? You're, your system performance is predicated based on the load patterns. It's based on the usage patterns. It's based on the you know, database you're using, how you're accessing that data, a hundred other things, none of which you actually know until the thing is in use. So if you, you know, you have to go forward with the assumption of, I cannot know everything I'm supposed to know because I'm not going to know it. Now, you also need to be migrating client data out of band, uh, preferably after hours. And this is kind of controversial because it directly impacts, you know, your work-life balance in in a lot of ways, right? And, you know, our guys at work that were moving the old system, they had to deal with a lot of junk after hours and sometimes even on Mm -hmm. weekends. Yeah. And and yeah, that absolutely stinks. But if you do it during the day, uh, that stinks a lot worse and a lot more quickly. 
unless your migration process is extremely carefully architected, which it isn't. I'm just going to go ahead and say that because that's, you know, like it, everybody knows it's temporary code. And, and so nobody is going to treat it like it's just a first class citizen, even if you say that you do. You know, it may be better than a lot of code in other places, but it's probably not as good as your main code. And it's it's such a weird usage pattern, too, for most developers. The thing is, is these characteristics make it where you don't want to do a massive data migration during business hours because the load spike may break your system for other clients, mm-hmm. you know, if it can even get through at all. Yeah, that makes sense. You may also run into other database issues, such as deadlocks that come from accessing data in a way different than normal system operations. Right. So you may be you know, touching a whole bunch of records at the same time because you're trying to do some kind of bulk insert. And you got a running production system that does not access it that way, but it needs some record or some other piece of data. And you've got it locked. And that other piece needs something that this thing has locked. And all of a sudden, now one of them's a victim. And it's going to crash in some weird way that is not entirely predictable. Yeah. So yeah, this just kind of gets the chaos out of the out of the system. The other thing about migration data flows is that they also have a tendency to flood like your notification and your error channels if you have anything like that. Yeah. Uh, which is the next thing we're going to talk about. Yeah. So you want to try to separate your notification and errors for migration channels from those that come from normal operations. Like if data migration is occurring and something goes wrong, it can generate a lot. And I mean a lot of errors in a very short amount of time. Regular errors get lost in this noise. I I have seen this when doing migrations before or when someone like doesn't have their settings right and you're getting a bunch of debug or trace even stuff. Yeah, ours are... Ours are configured with like uncaught exceptions. Mm-hmm. And then that goes to a Teams channel. But oh, I always wow, watch yeah. that that channel notification. And so on the laptop over here, it'll just take the whole right side of the screen. When one of those goes, it's just a constant scrolling mess. And so I, I have to drag Teams over. It'll crash half the time. It You do not want this in the middle of the day in a situation where you know, maybe users are doing something on the system too, and that's breaking because now you can't really find their errors or you may not even see them. The uh, other issue is, is that you may have something that escalates errors to support or development. You know, like it sends an email or it, you know, it it hits some warning threshold in like AWS. Like you can do this with CloudWatch and you say, Hey, when it hits this threshold, fire off an SNS message. This goes to a Lambda and it goes into our bug tracking system. Hey, this is a problem. So if you flood that, uh, you're going to have a bad time, and you really, you really <laughs> don't want the, the one of the main reasons you don't want this in your main error channel is because as your other system, your new system evolves, people add those things and they don't think about the implications. So, like, if it's going into that pipe, it's coming out the other end, and you don't know what's at the other end of that pipe forever. <laughs> it's basically the way to think about it, and and this is something that we we kind of learned later <laughs> in, in the migration process. Um, it, this, this is a forced learning experience when you do this. Like, you will get better. Yeah. So remember that migrating clients, they already have a system that works. The, the old system works for them. 
or else they wouldn't be your clients. However, the new clients that are already, you know, already on the new system, they don't have an older system to fall back on. So if your new system doesn't work or breaks for some reason, they don't have anything to go back to. Yeah. And that's something that's easily forgotten because you have the goal of migrating people and you don't realize, hey, the, the stability issue has to be handled before then. Now, another thing we learned as we went along in this process was that you need to build a suite of supporting tools as you go. As you migrate cohorts of your clients over, you need to have a fairly organized approach for anything like custom scripts. Like you're going to find some weird data issues that you got to correct in bulk and you don't want to do another full migration. You know, you may have little bitty programs for handling certain things or just, you know, one-off type stuff. You want to make sure that these things are treated with the same level of discipline that you would treat any other piece of code. So if you have, you know, the full version control and PRs and all that kind of stuff for your other code, you need to do that here. Because what happens is, is if you don't do that, and then all of a sudden you need one of those scripts and you run it, you may find that it's it worked on this one use case. Nobody's looked at it. And the next dude ran it at two o'clock in the morning and you come into a system that's down at 6.30 when you arrive. Yeah. If a one-off situation happens enough, you really want to build some sort of temporary user interface around it so that support personnel can perform the operation rather than having to call on a developer. This is really big. I've done this for a few different things, not just migrations, but you you run into, you're doing the same thing over and over again. You're like, hey, let me just automate this and make it so that you guys can do it and I don't have to. Yeah, well, the thing with this is is your support people are probably going to be getting calls. And -hmm. so if they know, hey, this is how this looks when this problem occurs, if they have an interface, they can fix it on the phone right then. And so the client's not getting all worked up and and looking for other things that they think are problems. Uh, Because when they've moved all their data over, they're scared. And so anything that you're doing that increases that fear factor, it, it hurts you so much quicker there. Than it, than it would normally. Now, these supporting tools also need to be made available to other developers on the team so that when a problem occurs, it's more likely to get fixed you know, and fixed quickly. So you don't want to have some dude that's just got some SQL scripts on his hard drive and you know, he's in Jamaica for a week and you need one of those. Right? That, that's real bad. And you, you also need to be able to find it. You need to be able to identify it quickly, you know, name things appropriately so that you can, somebody else can jump in there. That also means that the dude can go to Jamaica versus, you know, staying in Podunk, Ohio somewhere. So guys, finally, and probably most importantly, understand the technical debt that the previous version already handled and bring that forward. Uh, It can be really tempting to ignore the code in the old system, but it's a great way to reintroduce old problems that were already handled. And I ran into this actually with my first job as a junior developer. Uh, I got brought on. We were upgrading a system and they were also trying out the whole, like I was on the second scrum team that they'd, they'd ever had. And the other one had only been around for about a month or two longer than us. So it was like this whole process was brand new and the product owners, they 
did their best, but they didn't know all the use cases. But our manager was like, no, we don't want you to look at the old system because we don't want like people just copying stuff. I'm like, the old system was written in Visual Basic and we're doing this in C Sharp. That's not possible, but okay. Yeah. And we we ran into this exact problem where it was like, oh, yeah, we get it out, stuff out to UAT and they're like they're having these issues and like this didn't like this didn't happen in the old system. And I was like, well, you didn't tell us that it needed to do that or not do that. And finally, we got management to let us actually see the code so we could just be like, oh, hey, this is what it's actually doing. Let me, you know. Yeah, it's especially good in old systems where you have a lack of bounded context. Uh, th- this is where I've noticed it, where the majority of the system accesses the database in a certain way and looks at it and says, okay, a an invoice is this thing. Right? It's an invoicing system. And this is what an invoice is. And this is what an invoice does. But you get this little sliver over here for tax related crap that it gets used once a year. And its definition of an invoice is that plus some other stuff or minus some stuff. But it's using the same entity. And so if you don't see that code, that thing breaks at tax time and you get to drop everything you're doing and handle it by April 15th. Or actually probably by the end of January. A lot of those cases. So you are going to want to look at the old code just simply because there are business rules and things that people have forgotten. Most companies are not stable enough where there's somebody around that remembers writing the code. You know, either like either they're young and they they wrote the code and they left two years ago or they've been there 20 years and they're like me and they can't remember crap. So you cannot use that as a discovery process. You're going to have to actually have a discovery process for finding that stuff. Now. Any system is continually modified to handle various edge cases. And the people that do it, they're not around anymore on average. You do not want to reintroduce edge cases when you do a rewrite because your, you know, your conception of what the thing is is what the old system's conception of it was when the old system started, but the old system evolved and you haven't yet. You don't want that evolutionary pressure on you. And sometimes you'll find things like, hey, the way the old, you know, the I say the old framework, yeah, the old framework of the old language handled integer division. <laughs> yeah, is is about different. PD? Yeah, it's different than the way your current language handles integer division, and uh, so yeah, it's uh, you you learn that the uh, the fun hard way when you're trying to convert things into uh, geographic coordinates. Or you find that it stores things in a weird way. Um, so like oh, yeah. I took a file format that was used by an industrial sewing machine mm-hmm. and it interleaved the bytes. So like your X and Y for a for a move was basically the X was in the low nibble of two two bytes and the Y was in the high nibble because of the way that the memory because it was old. You know, like that's some stuff out of the sixties, you know, and you, know, you don't you don't think about that, but you just you just don't know what's in an old system. And so you really have to look if there's yeah. any way you possibly can. Yeah. So this also means that the people writing the new system should either have access to or have knowledge of the old system or at least have a point person who does have access to that. And that was the issue that we ran into is management. I guess they had had people do that in the past where they just copied and pasted from the old and they're like, well, we're we're just not going to give you access to it. And 
we we actually were able to get it through one of our POs who had access to the code. But then then management recanted when I was when like we basically went and explained, hey, it's literally not possible to copy and paste this over, but we really need to know what this application is doing because like what they're saying doesn't make sense. So we need to get in there and actually see what's happening. Yeah, of course, the corollary to this is that management needs to make sure apps get replaced before everybody's gone who remembers writing it. Yeah. I've worked at several places where they're like, yeah, here's the code. It was written, you know, eight years ago (laughs) in some other programming language that you don't know. Uh, You know, dude bro that wrote it, you know, he he went back home to, well, in one case, I think it was Pakistan. And we don't know where he is, so we can't ask him. And, you know, there was another guy that was working with him, but he's dead. Like, well, you know, it's like I either got to place a phone call to Pakistan or I need a Ouija board. I don't Ooh. feel like either of those is going to help much. Like, you're going to want to replace the system before all the people are replaced that wrote the system. Only eight years? That sounds so nice. <laughs> like, I, I was dealing with, like, 20-year-old code. Yeah. We were I've... in college when I, when that code was originally written. Yeah, that's the difference between uh, governmental and private sector. So guys, migrating clients to a new system is something we all have to do at some point. However, you don't want to ruin everyone's experience of your app, so you need to handle the process smoothly. Ideally, clients should see no loss in functionality after a migration and should not be impacted when someone else migrates and should not be impacted when someone else migrates. Also, you need to make sure that the migration process itself doesn't interfere with active development or conceal other system issues. Finally, you want to make sure that both your systems and the people that run them can deal with the migration process without getting overloaded. Guys, that pretty much wraps us up. Check out the aftercast where we're going to talk about some things that managers need to consider when a migration process is going on or some things that you may need to bring up to management during that process. Standby for Titanfall. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Standby for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. For references, show notes, and extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Help us make the show possible by supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash completedeveloperpodcast. You'll get extras, including a weekly aftercast where we discuss the topic of the week and bonus material with some of our patrons. You can also follow us on Twitter at completedevpod, like our page on Facebook, and follow us on Instagram to keep up with news about the show. Join the conversation anytime via Slack by signing up at slack.completedevelopernetwork.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.